Hold on, everyone. This will be episode 73 of the Strength and Success Show. Going to wait for Riley to send a join request and hop on. Episode 73 is going to be titled, You Don't Want a Power Lift. A uh, little bit of a call out. <laughs> Every now and again, you guys need that. So, you know, got to be reminded of things. So as soon as Riley hops on here, she'll send a join request. We're going to go in. Keep in mind, you guys can ask questions on the live. There's a request. We have questions from you guys. Myself on Wednesdays, occasionally on Sunday. Uh, she happened to do hers on Wednesday. I did mine on Wednesday. There she is. How you doing, Harley? <laughs> she didn't answer a single one of her questions yesterday Good. because she saved them for the podcast. How's that? <laughs> so I was thinking about that. And I was like, you know, I really probably should like mention like questions in my story the podcast but those of you that put questions in my story q a and you listen to the podcast i am so sorry um like i will put up the q a and then like i'm a i'm very like my brain goes in like three million directions at once so i'll be trying to it. And i don't know if that's just like, like i have to multitask because like i have a puppy who requires a lot of clients and videos and uh programs and like i'm working on the nutrition aspect learn new things like, my brain is just going so many different directions at once that like i'll put up the QA because i'm like oh yeah i'm really motivated this is a time this is the perfect time for me to answer questions so i'm not super busy and then i'll forget so i apologize if i answer questions it's not because uh it's not because i hate anyone or don't want to hopefully we have a better connection because i got a little choppy I'll do the best I can. I don't know if they're getting choppy or if they're getting me choppy or if you're getting me choppy. So hopefully this goes through a little bit more smoothly. Right now we have a little bit of a choppy connection, so hopefully it goes well. Like I said, this is episode 73. It's, of course, brought to you by Culture Nutra, the supplement company that both Riley and I own. Uh, this one's titled, You Don't Want to Power Lift. And this is something that Riley and I talk about very, very often. Powerlifting is not easy. It is never going to be easy, and it is never going to get easier. The entire point of getting stronger is that you can handle more, do more, work more, live with more, deal with more. It's actually important to go out of your way to work harder every single day you power lift to get better at it. And if you don't want to work harder and you don't want to prioritize these things and you don't want to do things, well, being freaking honest, you don't want to power lift. And I bring this up. I happen to share a picture. Uh, the picture is nine years old. And it is eight of us standing together at the end of a USPA meet nine years ago. And in that picture of the eight of us, which were training partners and crews that I was involved in back then, everybody at that time was incredibly gung-ho and super like, fuck yeah, powerlifting, I'm going to be the best. Out of that picture, only two of us out of the eight still compete. And I'm the only one who actively still competes routinely. Uh, one of the people in there competes maybe once every two or three years if he feels like, but not very often, does other things. He's like a recreational powerlifter now. So that was an attrition rate of 85% over nine years. And I've talked about this a lot in seminars. And I've talked about it a lot on the podcast. You can look around any gym you're at that's a powerlifting gym, and in five years, 50% of those faces won't be there. In 10 years, 75% won't be there. And if you are a lifer lifter, which... If you're watching this, hopefully you are, and that's going to be a decision within you. Both Riley and I are lifers. We've talked about this often. We're always going to lift and lift with intention. You're going to go out of your way to do things that make you uncomfortable or that are harder. Um, you know, we're not those people who say, I don't want to front squat because it's uncomfortable. 
I don't want to do this deadlift variation because it's uncomfortable. We're more of the after I get to do this because it's going to make me stronger. And my goal is to move my total. So this helps me move my total. And it's a mind frame that so many people have like, oh, this is hard. I don't want to do it. Can I sub it for something else? Fuck you. Sorry, but fuck you. It's supposed to be hard. I won't say that very politely. You aren't doing this for easy. Easy is sitting on your couch and watching Netflix and they don't give you any awards, records, medals, or accolations or whatever thing you're, you're doing this for for sitting on the couch watching Netflix. You are doing this for you. You need to care for you. And if you don't care for you, you don't want to power lift. And that's fine. You don't have to. Yeah, I want to preface, I preface my, my rants about it with um, it is up to you to decide your dedication level and like how much you're willing to put into it. Like that's always yours to um, decide. So if this is just purely recreational and don't eat plans of competing or if this is something like you want to compete once a year to like have, have a and have friends or what, that's fine. That is your level i'm not knocking that i'm not shitting on it nothing you dictate or dictate how much you want to put into it that is always on you but um if you are someone who is constantly about your lack of progress uh you are you know, you're like well i'm where i should be i'm not where i want to be why am i not getting stronger faster why am i not xyz plot and you're just complaining all the time uh, but at the same flip of the coin you were just in my inbox two days ago complaining about the exercise that I assigned for you hard then that's a different story and that's what happens a lot right is how you'll get a client and I will see something that I deem as an area and I'm like okay to this opportunity we need high bar squats because high bar are pretty much everyone's nemesis. Everyone bitches about high bar squats. Um, and I will put in high bar squats because that is what you need. And I'm of the mindset that you do not need to be low bar squatting all year round because it is terrible for your shoulders. Um, it is too much overload and you're not, you're not necessarily probably training the weakness that you need. So I like to use high bar for majority of the training year until you're in peak. So if I tell you that you need high bar and you're like, high bar's too hard. I don't want to do it. Then you don't want to power lift. Like you don't, you don't care about getting stronger. You don't care about these goals that you have. And like, that's, that's up to you. You have to like, so bluntly honest with yourself about what it is that you want and what it is that you're willing to do in order to achieve these said goals that you have. Like if, if one of your goals requires you to go to the gym four times a week and that's just too much and you can't do it, then you don't, goal and that's okay make a different goal than else but powerlifting is supposed to be hard and I feel like I feel like I have like said this so many times we've said this on so many power on so many podcasts before that powerlifting is supposed to be hard it's literally testing your absolute maximal strength so how do you expect to test your to push yourself to the point of absolute maximal strength if you're just going through the motions every day in the gym and you're getting to 70% of your max and you're like this is hard <laughs> this is challenging this feels tough Yes. It's supposed to feel tough. It's supposed to suck. Like hitting 100% or 102% or whatever of your max, fuck, even hitting 90% of your max should feel like 
hard. That should feel tough. That's 100% what it's supposed to feel like. Um, so I don't, I don't have any sympathy. I have zero sympathy and empathy, and I'm a very sympathetic and empathetic person. I take on other people's emotions way more than I should have, or way more than I should. But I have no sympathy or empathy for someone who gets a program from something that they asked. They literally pay me to write their program because they want to get stronger. And then they complain that this is really hard. I had a tough time. Good, good. They're like, oh, this, this exercise, this exercise uh, kicked my ass. Good, that's what it's supposed to do. It's not supposed to be a walk in the park if that's what you want to do something else. Knit. I lack I don't fine know. motor skills. Um, <laughs> like it's, I don't. I, I don't want to knit. <laughs> I don't even mean to be like harsh or rude or whatever. And like I said, like it is entirely up to you what your dedication level is to powerlifting or any other hobby that you do. That's entirely up to you. I don't dictate that. Trevor doesn't dictate that. Your spouse doesn't dictate that. You choose that. Um, but if this is what you choose, then like, I don't know, shut up and work, I guess, you know, like I just, I don't, um, you don't have to do it. No one's making you do it. No one's forcing you to have the goals that you have. If you said you want a 400 pound squat, you're the one who said you want a 400 pound squat. So I'm going to give you the things that you need right. to get a 400 pound squat. And then so understand what you were do doing wasn't getting you there. So you have to try different it's, ways, different yeah. systems, different things. Like Riley was really against the high bar. That's so common. A lifter doesn't want to high bar because they can't lift as much as they can low bar. And they get freaked out. Like, well, I'm not lifting heavy weights. Like, that's not the point. The point is to do hard work and build areas of opportunity and weaknesses. When you're high bar and you can't use the leverage of your body, you have to use your quads. And if you're a raw squatter, most of you are losing your lifts in your legs, not necessarily in your back because you lower all the time. Your back is strong. You have to learn to accept the work as it is and deal, do with the work as it is and not bitch and moan because you're not lifting max weights all the time or you're not doing this and that. Like, that's not the point. The point is to get better through training. You're training for the platform. You don't just platform, platform, platform every time and expect to get anywhere. Uh, I know Jordan was on the podcast earlier. I don't know if he's still on here. He joined in there. But his, his like pet peeve is always like, this feels heavy. It's like, the hell do you think you signed up for? <laughs> when is powerlifting going to be light? <laughs> Go sign up for a marathon. That's real light. Well, you know, if you're, if you're, okay, people are like, well, my low bar is significantly weaker than my high bar. Okay. So don't you think that if you were to bring up your high bar, that by proxy, your low bar would also probably increase? Like if you were a 300 pound low bar squatter and a 250 pound high bar squatter, if you increase that low bar to 275, you might be looking at a 320 squat, a low bar squat. You know what I mean? So it's like, just because you're not good at it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it that's realistically what you should be doing. You should be doing the things that you're not good at. Uh, today, Trevor mentioned something about like throwing an overhead press. And I was like, fuck, I don't want to do overhead press. I'm really bad at not it. Not just overhead press. I'm really press. bad at overhead, overhead press. That's probably press. So I no momentum of the drop down. <laughs> and the look I got was like, why do you hate me? <laughs> and I'm also like, well, why do you hate not progressing your bench? Let's work on this. <laughs> Yeah, I said I'm, like, I'm, I'm gonna put him in for me. Max your bench, so you might want to I will out. fully embrace the suck. There was some young man in the gym today. He's like, "Why are you doing that?" I'm like, "This is my weak point. Like, that's why I'm doing this. This is the hardest variation for me. So that's why." I'm doing this. 
it because I want to bring this lift up. As much as I loathe the bench press, it is a very uncomfortable lift for me through various reasons. I still want to build it. I still know I can build it, so I'm going to try. And I'm going to do the things that are uncomfortable. I had like double banded dead press, which is awful for me because I'm a full on leg driver. So I'm literally lifting with zero leg drive. And then I had knees up bench press volume, so no stability. These are my weaknesses. I'm super weak at them. I'm going to get stronger at them so I can bring the actual lift up. And they're not comfortable, but you do it. And I, I gave myself 10 sets of that uncomfortableness. <laughs> All right. Let's get to some questions. Reminder, you guys can ask questions here on the live. We've also yeah. got a lot of questions we get from our story Q&As. We kind of flip-flop back and forth between questions that people ask here and questions that people ask there. It just allows us to answer them a little bit more detail. So what is our first question, Riley? Most important time for cars. So this is a little bit of a minutia situation, focusing on the minutia. Carbs are very, very important to performance. Um, but from the aspect of pure power lifting, since we're not doing a lot of muscular endurance work with the main lift, your amount of glycogen storage isn't super duper impactful on how much representation of strength you have for low reps. Now, if you're in more of like an off season, and you have a lot of volume, it can start to take shape. So you want to make sure your glycogen storage are topped off. Generally, your glycogen stores haven't dipped if you've eaten carbohydrates in your diet. They're probably in there. Your carb stores are pretty much full at that point. If you want to top them off, like breakfast doesn't have to be huge. It could be 20, 30 grams of carbs. And there's going to be enough for you. If that's your first meal and then you work out, plenty of carbs in there. Um, there's really interesting research that shows unless you have a very long, enduring, very, very like sweaty, like a lot of loss of hydration workout, like an outdoor workout that's exceeding two hours, ingesting carbohydrates during the workout doesn't have any impact on your performance. It was more impactful to swirl them around your mouth and then spit them out. And they're thinking that somehow the salvation of the sweetness caused a lower level of cortisol level because carbs will blunt your cortisol level, which lowered your stress response, which allowed you to work harder. It's in uh, Bill Campbell's book. Um, he's a director of sports performance and nutrition at University of South Florida, and he does all the research on these things. So it's a little bit more important to have a little bit of carbs before just to make sure you've topped off your stores but more important to replenish them post-workout to refill your glycogen source because your body's going through that recovery process. And until things are back to homeostasis, it doesn't start recovering the muscular damage you've done. So I would say ultimately, if I had to nitpick and say most important would be post-workout, but it is beneficial to put some pre-workout to make sure your glycogen stores are topped off. There isn't much benefit unless you have a very long endurance aspect to your programming to have them during your workout per se. Uh, if you're doing bodybuilding level volume and time under tension and contractions, then yes, yeah, some intra workout carbs are probably going to benefit you. If you're just powerlifting for an hour and a half, you're really not going to see much from intra workout carbohydrate ingestion. Yeah, definitely. Um, from, I mean, especially if you're in like this, I guess this could change a little bit too, depending on if you're in a surplus or a deficit. Um, if you're in a deficit and you are very limited on carbs, I would definitely choose the post-workout aspect just for the recovery, glycogen replenishment and whatnot. If you're in a surplus, I don't really think it matters. Um, I think that that's just like a little bit of overthinking it because you need to eat more calories anyways. But if you're in maintenance or in a slight deficit, definitely post-workout. Um, mentally, I prefer to spread mine out across all three. Um, like I will have, my breakfast generally isn't super heavy on carbs. Like Trevor mentioned, it's a little bit lighter on the carbs. Like I think like 30 grams will be max what I generally have for breakfast. Um, I like to have intra-workout carbs, not necessarily because it makes me feel any different, but I just like snacks. 
Um, so <laughs> uh, I will, uh, I usually will ingest somewhere between 20 to 30 intro workout. Um, more so like right at the beginning, like when I'm warming up, I just have something to eat because I don't <laughs> like lifting when I'm hungry. Such a star. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a Jeff Goldblum, uh, plushy toy, but, um, I like, I don't like lifting uh, I don't like lifting when I feel hungry. So I will bring like a small, like rice krispies or generally, or like, I'll have like a pop tart or something, which I know a pop tart is more than like 30 grams of carbs. But, um, those I'll save for like heavier squat or deadlift days. But I like to have the intro workout, like 20 to 30, 20, 30 grams of carbs. And then post-workout, I usually have like 40 to 50. Um, and that's, that's me not, not necessarily tracking my macros right now. Like I'm not necessarily, I'm not cutting. Uh, I'm just weighing in wherever I weigh in at for surge. So I prefer across all three, but that's more of a mental stimulation thing than it is like actual scientific evidence of this is the best way to do it. But majority of research studies will show you that post-workout is the most beneficial as far as like strength and muscle uh, goes. So that would be how I would prioritize it. Probably I would go post-workout. There's a quick question here. Do you guys water cut to make weight? And yeah, generally for meats, I want to emphasize that. I like the way you phrase it, that you water cut. If you are having to diet down significantly to lose a significant amount of body fat or body mass to make a weight class, chances are you're going to hinder your performance more than you're going to help your performance because your leverage has changed. You might sacrifice muscle in the process. and It takes time to acclimate to that weight loss. We've talked about this before. Riley taking about two and a half years to acclimate from going from weighing about 185 down to weighing about 154. It was a very different system of leverages and muscle and motor patterns that need to be rebuilt. So when we do cut for meats, it is simply just a manipulation of water and glycogen, and then we put that back in. So people don't understand that, because I get questions all the time about, I want to drop a weight class, how should I diet down? I'm 12 weeks out, I'm like, you shouldn't. I got one this morning. <laughs> and they're like, you shouldn't. You should not diet down. If you want to move down a weight class, make it a six month, eight month process, not a six to 12 week process, unless you're really competent in the water manipulation. So yeah, both of us do use water manipulation. Riley has a great response to it. She can swing about nine, 10 pounds, just from water load and sodium depletion. Mine tends to be like seven to eight pounds and then anything that's left I usually have to sweat out uh for 195 i don't have to sweat at all uh for, i'm sorry for 198 i don't have to sweat at all i can get there just for manipulation because my walk around is like 206 to 208 and for her for 148 her walk around is like 156 157 and she can get down to under 148 just from the water manipulation so manipulation from there so we both do it yes yeah i um i'll speak for myself here um the uh I, I compete between 148 and 165, so I'm not cutting every single meat. Like, I generally flip-flop. Like, I'll go 148, 165, 148, 165. Um, my walk around is somewhere between 155 to 157, so obviously I don't have to cut for 165. I just walk in at whatever I feel. Um, and then what I cut to the last two times that I've – or the only two times that I've cut to 48, um, I cut from 153 down to 145. And then this last one I cut from – 155 to 146 so yeah it's about eight nine pounds or so and that is purely just me loading water me cutting water me cutting sodium and cutting some carbs out um so nothing i didn't have to sweat for either one of those to lose the weight but i do like to fluctuate since i do sit like basically right in between those two weight classes um i do like to give myself a break from just cutting all the time i feel like i'd be miserable if i was doing that um plus it like it motivates me because I'll hit like a 148 total and then I'll go hit a, a total at 165 and I'm like, okay, well now I want to beat that 165 total. 
skate. So for me, it's like a competitive thing of like the cyclical, okay, like this, that's, I view like, myself as stronger, 81 so sometimes. I just like, try I to hit my same 98 tunnel at 81. <laughs> I really don't, but I really do, but I really don't. I shouldn't. Um, okay, next question. Um, how do you peak? How do you? Oh, how this do you run peaks with person. clients? Or is it when you work with someone person? on a longer scale, you begin to understand their recovery, their volume, their tolerance, their levels. Um, so it's hard to say I peak this way. We've gone over this a lot. There's generally some things I will do. So if a lifter is competing in wraps, generally, I like to take their heaviest wrap squat about three weeks out and then opener and heavy deadlift in that same time frame and then bench a little bit closer to the meat, like 10, 12 days out. But if they're not competing in wraps, they're competing in sleeves and their deadlift is stronger, then I like to take the heaviest deadlift first and then the heaviest squat and so forth down the line. But it can vary. Um, females tend to recover a little bit quicker than male athletes. I don't know if it's because they have better habits or Physiology-wise, I don't necessarily know the answers to that, but I know that I can generally stack all three heavy lifts in one week for a female about two weeks out and then just taper them down the week up for the meet and they'll be fine. But if you have a larger framed male who's exceptionally strong, say, for example, like I like to use Denim Sintic a lot because he's about 255, 258-pound male. And when we took his all-time squat record for the 242, we actually changed a little bit. Normally, we would take his heaviest squat three weeks out and then his opener and we, I'm sorry, um, normally we take his heaviest deadlift three weeks out, then his heaviest squat, and then taper him to meet. We did a little bit different because he was in wraps. We took heaviest squat three weeks out. We took an opener one week out, basically, or, or a little bit more a week out, but we can have out since the beginning of his week. And then we didn't take a heavy deadlift that time because we didn't fatigue his back out. We just took a moderate deadlift, which was basically just his opener, and then his heaviest bench, and that actually worked out pretty well for him. So you have to kind of just figure out, figure in, what taxes that athlete the most? I have some athletes where heavy deadlifts just wipe them out for two weeks. Like when I was working with Brit, with Britford, we had to take his heaviest deadlift four weeks out from the meet and then basically take close to 90% or so two weeks out so he was still fast and fresh from the meet. The closer he took his heaviest deadlift to the meet, the more fatigued he was on meet day. Um, then you have some lifters who have that same drop-off with a really heavy, grindy squat. It takes them a long time to recover from. We've learned with mine that I can recover from heavy squats relatively fast and that's new for me because I used to recover from heavy deadlifts relatively fast. Now, if I take a very heavy deadlift, I'm fatigued for a good while. Like this last prep, my last two heavy deadlifts were absolute garbage. They wouldn't have passed in any federation. And I took three weeks off from any heavy deadlifts, basically going to the meet two and a half weeks and deal it for 12 days. And I pulled more in the meet faster and cleaner than I did in the gym because that was what, how long it took for the fatigue to dissipate. Where deadlifts used to be like my wheelhouse, I can deadlift heavy every week. Now I can't. So now I have to taper that down a little bit differently and I can actually heavy squat almost all the way up to the meat. So it's going to vary and change as your body changes and your, your system changes. So it's just a matter of recognizing the recovery of that athlete and going through it. Like I've seen some athletes who can too, um, I was actually just talking about this, the American pro. Somebody mentioned how Dan Grigsby took 925 or whatever it was eight days out from the meat. Like, wow, that's a heavy deal. So I'm like, not for him. That's 80%. And they're like, what do you mean? I would go, well, he just hit 1,025 with like an RP eight and a half. He's going for 1,075. So if you look at 925, it's about an 82 and a half percent deadlift. That's not that heavy for him. And they're like, that's an interesting perspective. He took a speed deadlift basically because he just did it for a single. One speed deadlift and moved on. And then he hit 1,075 with the meat. So it's learning what your recovery methods are and realizing what is your top end percentage you can kind of get to without creating too much fatigue into the meat.
Yes. I have a, I have a general guideline for majority of people, especially like the first meet that we work through, um, just because you're constantly learning the lifter and like, you know, every time that they compete, you're constantly learning something new. It's just, it's data every single time. So like general peaking is going to be like, I like to take heaviest deadlift at three weeks out, heaviest squat at squat and bench at two weeks out. If they're, if they're in wraps and their squat is heavier than their deadlift, or just in general, if their squat is heavier than their deadlift, they outflip flop the squat and the deadlift to where it's squat three weeks out, deadlift two weeks out. Um, but you know, like recently with a client who went through a meat prep, we've gone through two meat preps together. Um, we realized that she does best taking her heaviest bench at three weeks out and then taking her opening bench at two weeks out and then going into the meat. So then she'd have like a D she'd have like a deload, uh, single or whatever, but that's how she peaked her. That's how we peaked her bench the best. And those are only things that you really know if you just kind of trial and error it. Um, it was something where she was grinding, she was over grinding her bench into the two weeks out too much. Um, so she's someone who likes to kind of like push herself a little bit. So if I give her a percentage, she'll bump it up like two and a half percent or like try and push herself a little bit. So she tends to push herself a little bit too fast, too quick um, and doesn't regulate as well. So this last time I was like, okay, well, we're going to take your opener at two weeks out and we just want this to move fast. And that produced her best bench results. Um, so it's a little bit trial and error. We've noticed for me that I tend, I tend to do better hitting heavy singles after having hitting a triple or a double. Uh, this is for squats. This is for deadlifts, not necessarily for bench, but for squats and deadlifts, um, I peak better if I'm hitting like a triple and then doubles and then saving the singles, or at least we're, this is what we think, saving those for meet day. Um, you know, it's, it's more psychological for me hitting heavy singles consistently over and over again, especially with squat. Those are the ones that get in my head. So for me, if I can feel comfortable tripling something or doubling something, the singles don't seem so scary. Whereas if I have like repeated singles over and over again, I'm like, oh, well, I only have one chance and I can't fuck this up. So that for me, that's a little bit more psychological. And that can come into a lot of lifters issues with peaking too, is that if something moves heavier than they think it should or moves slower than they think it should, they kind of like kill their confidence the rest of peak. So I try to pay attention to that too, where if I notice that someone grinded something a week too early, I will pivot and have them do like an opener. Uh, that following week so that way it moves fast and it kind of restores their strength and it's still above 90 percent. so you're still priming for strength and you're still priming for the singles without losing any sort of momentum you're not going to you're not going to mess up your meat day just by changing courses that way if anything you're probably going to save your meat day to where if you're three weeks out and you grind your bench and it feels terrible and you feel like shit and you're worried that you're not going to be able to hit a pr on bench day but then the following week i have you hit your opener and it flies you're like oh no problem i'm just tired you know, sometimes you have to just, you have to adjust things psychologically. I find you have to adjust things more than actually like physical and it's all fatigue. So if someone is like, well, I've hit more than this before deadlift or something. Yeah. You are probably also fresh and peaked for it. Um, your, your last heavy lifts are going to be most likely highly fatigued. As long as you're, we're pushing yourself in prep, you know, there are some times we have great preps where everything moves like super fast and you take a PR on your last one and whatever, but that's very far and few between that it happens. So we just have to remember that in peak, you are fatigued. It is supposed to be hard. You train hard, peak, easy, compete easier, you know? So like it's supposed, it's supposed to suck a little yeah. bit. 
that's something that's so lost in so many people. It's like, for me today. yes, you're, you're kind of grinding yourself down a little bit and you're reducing volume and then allowing yourself to super compensate so you can be anywhere as much as 5% stronger on meat day. And you get so lost on people and they just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and they never recover and never get that super compensation level and then they're flat on meat day. And then you have that fun, uh, not the meat I prepared for post that you have to make. <laughs> but it is the one you prepared for, you just didn't know it. All right, what's our next question? What does a what does after a meat look like? After a meat look like. What does what does your so meat I've been in this a very long time after, I've talked like about this. After a meat, what does it look I like? I don't like to touch a barbell for pretty much the entire week post meat. I know some people will go longer than that. Dave Tate has talked about he didn't touch a straight bar for four weeks post meat, which I think it might be a little bit excessive. But people get right back under the bar and they're like, back to work, back to work, back to work. These are the ones who grind out. These are the ones who burn out. This is a mental sport just as much as it is a physical sport. And if your mental isn't there, you're going to quit because it got too hard, which is what we talked about in the beginning. So I like to take that time off the bar for the first week. I give lifters two options with or without a barbell. I would hope and pray they would take it without the barbell, but some people are just really adamant and stubborn and it is their goal, so I allow it. But I like that first week to just push a lot of calisthenics, a lot of movements, a lot of things that are differently trained that they don't normally hit during it. So box jumps, you know, lateral ball throws, uh, sled drags, things they're not maybe used to. And I like to kind of push conditioning because as we're peaking, we are really deconditioning that athlete to express their true maximal strength. So my first week back emphasizes a little bit more rep work and conditioning. So it, it could be things like 20 rep goblet squats, uh, sled pushes with box jumps, high rep med ball throws, back extensions, pull-ups, push-ups, dips, whatever. Things that are just making you move your body in different directions but for some rep work so you can start to pick your conditioning up because that allows you to transition into the next week when you're back to the barbell and you start having an increase in volume. You start seeing sets of eight and 10 again. And if you've not done that, and you've not given yourself that week to recondition, you're going to really be hating life that first week. <laughs> if you haven't done anything to pick your conditioning back up because we are deconditioned. I prefer that from a mental aspect and a physical aspect, not actually loading your body, not putting a straight bar in your hands, allowing yourself to miss that barbell will make you look forward to it more. When you immediately get back from the meet, if you competed on Saturday and you're back under a barbell squatting on a Monday because you have to improve because you had a bad meet, you're going to continue to have bad meets because you're just burning yourself out and never giving your batteries a chance to recharge. Yeah, I like the week of no barbell kind of work for lifters. Um, and then generally following that week of no barbell stuff, it generally follows some sort of formula of like tens for your first two weeks, a week of eights, a week of sixes. And then depending on how long your blocks are before you deload, um, the lowest I usually go for reps in that first block back are sixes. Um, just because that's still within the strength phase, you're, you had three weeks of your hypertrophy rep range and then one week of a little bit heavier weight because you are going to transition back to that strength range more consistently. So I like to kind of like phase people down to that so that way they don't put a heavy barbell on their back and they're like, oh, shocked at like how terrible it feels. Um, but my <laughs> clients definitely hate me the first two weeks back because they're like, 10 suck. And I'm like, I know, but you need um, my, uh, uh, my week back after the American Pro is different because I pretty much jumped right back into meat prep for surge because they're about eight weeks apart. Um, so for some things I had higher reps and for some things I just had kind of like speed work, like my deadlifts were just speed singles against bands. I want to say it was like 70%. So it was nothing heavy 
still very light, just move it fast. Uh, that was basically my whole first week back after the American Pro was just moving things fast. It wasn't heavy, it wasn't super taxing. Moving things fast, my uh, accessories were really high rep in that like hypertrophy rep range. So generally, if I'm not going back into meat prep after a meet, it's that first week back is like exactly what Trevor mentioned since he writes my program. It is, you know, non-barbell work, non-specific. I'm doing lots of sled drags. I'm doing bodybuilding type stuff, things that I like. Um, but since I'm jumping right back into meat prep and being eight weeks out, it was just kind of like a speed primer week. It gives me a week to recover because it's lighter weight and it's just fast and it's nothing heavy. So that's uh, that's the only the most caveat fun to week my is you've had all that food week being and then you do all these reps time. and you get this massive pump and then you have the gym light and you're like, look at me, I actually look like I lift this week. <laughs> I have a question popped in from Saucy Mike. I hope you're hip hop artist, man. Um, any tips for strengthening, mobilizing, internal rotation, or strengthening the TFL area causing issues throughout my entire right leg unless warmed up thoroughly? You kind of answered your own question there. So the TFL, tensor fascia latte, is actually a hip external rotator and abductor. And if you are lacking hip internal rotation strength, the TFL starts to stabilize the pelvis for you when you're going through a range when you're supposed to be going through internal rotation, i.e. dropping below parallel on a squat. So if you're having trouble with internal rotation, that would be the first thing I would look to do is do some static internal rotation stretches to open the area up. But I would really look to strengthen hip internal rotation through movements such as uh, banded hip internal rotations, you can do that by squeezing a follow between your knees and actually pulling the leg out against like a hip circle or a light double mini band. I like a version where you lay down and tuck under your arm and, and do that, that hip external rotation. So if this is the case, we get this often with sumo pullers who tend to externally rotate when they squat, they externally rotate when they deadlift, and then they also externally rotate their hips when they bench press to create a leg drive. It's not quite an overuse injury. It's just a strength imbalance of much more external rotation to internal rotation. So spend some time every day, just grab a band and actually work on every morning, internally rotating deliberately with a pause against that resistance band every day to neutralize and even out the fact that you use external so much more than your internal. Our internal hip rotation is our shock absorption when we're descending and coming down the hole, which is why you feel that pain in your TFL because you are weak in internal rotation. Your TFL is trying to act as a stabilizer to absorb the shock. It's not meant to do that. That's what causes that pain. People start calling it IT band syndrome. Your IT band is connected tissue. It's doing nothing but holding shit together. So your IT band isn't on fire. Your TFL isn't on fire. It's just doing the job of something else that isn't doing its job, and that's why it hurts. So take the time to actively and every day strengthen your internal rotation until it evens out. Once you've eliminated that pain in that process, you can probably drop back to every other day or two or three times a week. But in the beginning phases, do it every single day. I have a similar issue for the exact reason that is that I live in external rotation. I sumo squat, I externally rotate, or I, I sumo squat, I sumo deadlift, I externally rotate to squat. I'm a hard leg driver on bench. Um, and I had the same issue where my TFLs were just like on fire is what it felt like all the time. And we noticed that it was my hip, my hip internal rotation was really poor. So the things that I feel like helped the most were the banded hip internal rotations just for like activation basically and like feeling what it feels like to have internal rotation and feeling what that feels like um hip airplanes also really focusing on not just externally rotating on the way out but really focusing on hip internally rotating in like rotating in towards my body holding it there and then externally rotating on the way out of the air hip airplane 
And then also I had a lot of like dumbbell split squats to where I would do the same thing to where when I would reach down to do the split squat, I would internally rotate in and like rotate my body in towards my opposite adductor. So that way I could really feel that uh, internal rotation, my adductors firing and everything. So that gives you, you're working on the stabilization with the hip airplane, you're working on the activation with the hip internal rotation, and then you're working on the loading pattern and strengthening with like the dumbbell split squats with the internal rotation bias. So those three things are what I feel like really took that pain away uh, from me in that aspect. But those are things that I had to do every single day. Um, because if I didn't, it was on and fire. I like like I literally was sitting down and it felt like my legs were Somebody gets an airplane, all they're focused on is the external rotation. Like you do that all day, every day. Go inside, hang out there for a little while, let it contract and hold it and then come back out. Because the outside is your wheelhouse. You already do that. Spend some time going in. Mike's actually mentioning that I do hip airplanes three times a week. It's the most beneficial as a right uh, now thing. Um, so when you're doing those hip airplanes, actually double them every day, but sit in that internal rotation, let it elongate and stretch, get better there because everybody can do the external rotation part. That's the easy part. But you see when everybody comes in, they fall over. That's a dead giveaway. If you fall over when you come in, you have really weak and shitty internal rotation. Okay. Uh, I was how many years way. did you train I consistently before qualifying for big meets? I <laughs> um, So just my story is a little bit different. I've lifted for 29 years. I didn't compete for the first 15, no, 14 years. I lifted, even though a bunch of people told me I should. Um, I was in Gold's Gym at 18 years old, and somebody saw me squatting in the high fives. and were like, you're really strong. You should power lift. And I didn't know a tremendous amount about the sport back then. There wasn't the internet like there is now. So I went to a uh, um, book, book stand, news store. What do you think? What are those things? A uh, newsstand where you can get like the obscure magazines. And I picked the Power of the USA, which is what was recommended to me. And I weighed about 204 pounds at 18. And I was squatting like 565. Gym high, not competition depth. And uh, I picked up the magazine. And I saw at 148, Tony Connors was squatting 605. And I thought, I don't belong in this sport at all. <laughs> Did not know he was in single ply gear. I actually know Tony Connors now. He lives in Florida. He's a super nice guy. He's still strong as hell. It's incredible because he's like 60. <laughs> but that took me out of the sport because I was too intimidated to do it. Um, so when I actually started competing, I competed in strongman first and weightlifting to rebuild my body. I competed in strongman, weightlifting, powerlifting. I even did a random CrossFit contest here and there just for fun. It, it, I want to say within – so I came into powerlifting with already a, a large strength base. Uh, I was a national level strongman first. So when I came with the power thing, it took me all of about one year to get my first international elite total and I was still natty. So I got my first international elite total at 181, my, about 15 months in, 16 months in, I think. And I went down there on a dare just because someone was talking shit. I said, I would, I would starve myself down to 81 and out total them and I did. Uh, so that was my motivator back then. But that was my first international elite total and I qualified for all unity and went from there. So it's unfair to say I was only in the sport 15 months before getting my first international elite total because I'd already been competing at that point beyond six years in other strength sports and then came into just purely powerlifting. Uh, my intention was to come up with powerlifting first, but I was too awkward and shy to put a singlet on and strongman let you wear whatever you want. So there's that. <laughs> um, so I was already lifting for a solid base of 14 years and already had a significant level of strength. I just needed more refinement and understanding of certain things and mechanics. I truly thank weightlifting for that because learning how to move a barbell in multiple different ways made me so much better of an athlete and better of a coach as well to be able to spot individual differences and techniques and variants. And also understanding that raw mechanics are very different than multiply mechanics. Because when I started in this sport, 
all of the information out there was in single ply and multiply. There was no raw lifting. Uh, you were the guy who showed up in raw, everybody else had gear, and there was no mechanics talk for raw. So I was kind of in a different pathway than other people when I understood raw mechanics before most. And like understood using the quads and anterior chambers of the posterior chain. It's really hard to quantify how long it should take you because it's gonna depend upon your background. I know Riley will bring this up. Like her first meet she told International Elite but she had already been lifting and competing in athletics for probably 10 plus years before that. So it's really unfair to say how long it will take. It's how much are you willing to dedicate to the process determines how long that will take you. Uh, yeah. So my, my first meet, I totaled international, uh, uh, but, um, the, uh, so I had been playing volleyball basically from the time I was six until 19 competitively. Um, and that doesn't build the same base of strength that, um, that you would need necessarily for powerlifting, but it does build a lot of discipline and work ethic and everything like that. Um, after volleyball, I took a little bit of a hiatus from the gym, but I ended up getting back into uh, bodybuilding just from like the person I was dating at the time, the people I hung out with at the time, bodybuilding and switched to powerlifting. And I was power, I was powerlifting without competing. I want to say for two years before I committed to a meet. And the first year of that was me spent following like template programs, uh, not really receiving any formal coaching or anything like that. Um, I like to, I like to read and watch things for myself and figure things out for myself. I feel like that's how I learn best. Like I can be told what to do, but, and I will do that, but I learn better if I'm like, well, I'm going to try it this way. Even if it's not necessarily the right way, I want to try it this way. So that way I can learn the other way. Like I like, I learn things the hard way. Um, but when I finally signed up for my first meet at 181, Yes, my first total was international elite there. And then from there, I got invited to compete at the Arnold, which um, only me at that time, it was an invitation only me. I don't know what it's like now, but total international elite at that meet as well. And then from there, I have only done invitational or like pro-am meets since then. Um, so I, I hate answering this question because it feels like, feels very braggadocious. And I don't mean to come across that way, but I have been an, an athlete my entire life. Uh, like since I was six years old, I was told I had to play volleyball and I ran track in the off season and I played basketball to keep in shape. And then I think for the longest amount of time that I spent outside of the gym was two years. Um, so, so that I feel like it's an unfair advantage to like ask that question and answer that question because it's just, that's, I just got, I was just strong and I worked hard for that and I built that base and I luckily, I guess, uh, hit the, uh, hit the mark for what international elite was at my first meet. And it's just, every time I say that, someone's like, Oh, cool. Congratulations. You didn't have to work for it. I'm like, <laughs> that's what no one sees. Like there's no such thing as an overall success. <laughs> so. Here's the work that no one recognized. What a fantastic point. Like just because you walked into her first meet and told her the national elite, people forget she's literally been in athletics since she was six. <laughs> that was 20 years prior to the international league total. Yeah. No, and I, you know, I dropped from 181 to, I did two meets at 181 and then I dropped to 165. And 
I was able to maintain an international elite total at 165 too, but that came with its struggles. I didn't compete for, I think I took like a year off, a year and a half off or close to two years off from competing between that 181 drop to 165. Um, maybe not quite two years, but it was like a year and a half or so because I dropped weight fast. So I dropped a lot of strength. So I had to rebuild that back. Um, so it's just, it's just kind of, it's unfair to answer that question. And it, it does, I'm sure rub people the wrong way that are working, that have been doing this for five years and are still working on an international elite total, but it's not, it's a, it's, you just, you can't judge someone based off of just the surface level of what you see them doing for powerlifting. You don't know if that person was an athlete their whole life. You don't know what they were doing before. Um, if they were a CrossFitter before, or like Trevor mentioned, a weightlifter or a strongman before, like they're going to already have a base of movement ability and they're already going to have a base of strength as well um, to add to their powerlifting total. So this is one of those things where you kind of got to focus on your own your own lane, you know, um, you can throw out an arbitrary number for how long it should take you to get to invite meets or to hit your international elite total. But that number is going to differ based off of everyone's skill level, their athletic background, uh, how much they're willing to put into it, how much time they spend doing it already. So it's just an arbitrary number. Right, what's our next like, question? It's hard to quantify that. Okay, how long do you think it takes for you to uh, work with a client for you to really understand There are some that are responsive and communicative and help you along the way, so you might start to really understand it within one month. And there are some who would just ghost you the entire time and they never give you any feedback and you never get tagged or anything and you never see anything, you never know anything. And it might take you more like six to nine months to learn them. <laughs> then you have some people who only tell you when something's going wrong. And you're like, well, if I had known about this before, you probably could have circumvented this problem. Um, so again, that's another arbitrary number because it really depends upon the feedback, the communication style, and how you're seeing them progress from what you're giving them or hoping to see from them and so forth. So these things aren't really quantifiable because it depends upon the individual's communication or response level more than anything else. I, I literally have some clients that I have a guy now who's supposed to compete in November and I've gotten zero weekly recaps, zero videos to see of any kind. Zero response, even though every time I send him this program, I'm like, hey, how are we doing? I don't get any response whatsoever. So hypothetically, he's doing fantastic. If something was really wrong, hopefully he'd tell me. I have no clue. Uh, and I've had a situation like that before where someone gave me zero information whatsoever. I knew absolutely nothing the entire way. And then seven months later, they actually had a competition other than when the competition date was. And they went like eight for nine, nine for nine. I had a phenomenal performance. And the only time I ever heard from him was after that performance. So it's like guesswork, you know, doing the best I can and hoping I'm giving him the right direction. But it really depends upon how communicative that client is to you. I think I answered this on my story and I said that I learned the most about a lifter after their first meet, which is true. Uh, you will learn a lot about how they are um, as far as like stress on meet day, how they handle the pressure, all that kind of stuff, where you, where their breakdown is since you're pushing to the absolute max. But I want to add a caveat to this that realistically your pretty much always learning something new about clients you work with the whole time you're with them. Um, you know, it just because things happen, um, people, people's stress changes, their job changes. Uh, you have to adjust their programming 
from five days a week to three days a week because of scheduling changes. So then you have to see how they respond on three days a week and how much they can handle on three days a week. Um, you People go through leverage changes where they gain weight, they lose weight. You're having to change their stance on things. You're, you're, just, you're constantly learning something about the lifter and it's always a trial and error basis that I, like Trevor, there's no arbitrary or quantifiable number that you can really put to say like, I definitively know everything about this lifter because you won't. It's just never going to happen where you know absolutely everything about them. Because if you did, then you would be giving them their national elite total within their first meet or something, you know, like there's just no way to really know that, um, to know everything about them. Like things flux and change way too much. Like you think that, you know, like for me with squats, I, I get on this path where I'm like, oh yes, I am making some progress on squats. Things are feeling good. And then all of a sudden I go in one day and everything feels off. And then I have to change things that going in heels, standing wider, standing more narrow, more flare, less flare, like things change as our bodies change. We're always constantly adding more muscle, losing weight, gaining weight, like whatever it is, there's no way to say like, I've learned everything about you open and closed book, you know, like that's, that's it. Cause there's, there'd be no reason to continue progressing that lifter. If you knew everything about them, there'd be no reason for you anymore. Like if you, if you knew everything about the lifter and you taught everything that they needed to know and made all the changes that you need to know, they don't need you anymore. Not that we're like, not that we're like uh, requiring you to need us or anything like that. But the reason why we're hired is to consistently help you make those changes in order to get stronger. But if we knew everything about you, we could just send you on your merry way and be like, here, we already gave you all the information that you need. Just keep doing this over and over again, you know, but like, that's what we're here for. We're here to consistently help you and see things that you may not see the only because constant it's hard change. to recognize 100%. changes when you live in your body every single day. Yeah. Um, it's a a Cairo because and I have often. many friends who are chiropractors and I love what they do. And then I have met many Cairo's who are absolute shit. It is a vast field of different opinions and different approaches to healing or helping or teaching. An example of that would be Seth Albertsworth. He's a friend of mine. He's a chiropractor. And he doesn't like to do a lot of hands-on manipulation and tissue work because he wants to teach you how to help yourself and heal your body. And he will give you suggestions on why you're hurting. He'll do a little soft tissue work just to make sure he's identified and popping the issue and situation. But he's going to give you the tools to help you help yourself not make you reliant on coming to him three days a week for adjustments and that's going to help you. The fundamental thing that people forget is muscles move bones. That's what pulls the bony structure. The muscle moves the bone. So if you have things that are so-and-so, so-and-so quote, out of alignment, a muscle is pulling it there. And if you're not giving someone the tools to change that muscle length, muscle tone or activation or strength, how are they ever going to get better? So there are some chiropractors that make you very, very reliant on them to feel better. All they care about is when you come to their office, you come into pain, when you leave their office, you feel better, come three times a week, blah, blah, blah. That's not a very good clinician in my opinion. Uh, Tony Rogers is also a chiropractor, does a lot more soft tissue work than anything else and gives you tools to fix it. Joao is the same thing. Joao is a chiropractor.
first question that I ask if someone goes to a Cairo and they come back and they're like oh, I feel good I'm like cool what they was wrong or what did they give you to work on going forward if the answer is nothing then generally I'm like well when you go back I need you to ask uh, I need you to ask what it is that they worked on what they saw what they felt whatever it may be and what they recommend to improve upon um, I don't know everything and I am not seeing the lifter hands on to know exactly what's happening I can generally get an inkling of what is hurt or tight or off or whatever based off of like movement. But if you're going to see them, I find their role should be a teaching role. Like they should be like Trevor mentioned, showing you what it is that you can do to improve. So that way you don't have to see them all the time. So that is always the first question that I ask when someone is like, Oh, I went to a Cairo, I went to a PT, I went to whatever. I'm like, what did they tell you to work on? What did they tell you to do? So that way we can add that to your daily homework. If you're not getting anything, I'm generally going to send you back to ask them. And if they give you nothing, then I'm going to kindly recommend that you see someone else um, because it, it should not be a dependent situation. Like you should not be dependent on them to be pain-free. Uh, you should be able to live pain-free on your own uh, as long as you're doing the things that you should be doing. So, just make sure that wherever you're going for the chiropractor, I won't throw out an arbitrary number either for how often you should go see them, but just make sure that they are like educating you on like maybe the things that are causing this to happen or some things that you can work on daily to improve that. Like this, it, it's always the clients that want to know about why this movement is good for them and why it's, um, you know, like, why, why am I doing this? What's the, what's the intent behind this? Are the same ones that will not ask any questions of their chiropractor of what's the intent behind improving improving this thing and it's like have that same energy about asking questions to your chiro or your pt because that's what their job is too just like my job and trevor's job is to um teach uh teach you to be stronger or help you become stronger it's their job to teach you to move effectively or move efficiently or balance your body or whatever it may be so don't be afraid to ask that's what you're paying them for essentially Of course. 